So uh, it's it's going to be a tough interview today, Jordan. It's going to be tough to do this podcast episode. It's really upsetting. Um, you know, I saw the footage, the really shocking, terrifying footage earlier of President Joe Biden having a little spill. that fell off yeah. his bike there. And uh, it's yeah. going to be hard to focus on anything else because I'm just wondering you know, if he's doing okay. Really scary. I'm heading over to Arlington National Cemetery here in a few minutes to pay my respects at the uh, tomb of the unknown cyclist. <laughs> just, uh... I didn't expect him to instantly turn to dust like that. I must admit, like that's not my understanding of how human physiology works. But you know, the the footage doesn't lie. It was, it was crazy. You know, I I saw the video first. I think Hassan tweeted the video and i thought first like uh i'm like i'm kind of i'm maybe this makes me a really bad person i kind of chuckle whenever someone falls myself included like i don't care i'm 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 totally down with self-deprecating humor um i'm i'm like a when when people kind of stumble and fall it's like yeah it's kind of funny whatever it's not the big if they got hurt that's that's not funny so i saw that and kind of chuckled but then within minutes like literally minutes it was the right was just fucking running with it. This man is unfit to be president. <laughs> and then the left was like, this somehow explains every worldview that I have. And it's like, oh, yeah. this is just a perfect metaphor for our foreign policy or inflation <laughs> or like what? Just like, I'm done. So like I saw it. I had like a joke tweet that I kind of replied. I replied with and deleted it because I wanted nothing to do with, yeah. <laughs> with the online discourse around Biden's big spill. Yeah. Well, this man is not fit to be president. It's like, well, I, as usual, I agree with that statement, but. Not for any of the reasons that you're saying that it is. I mean, that's, that's the fundamental problem we always run into with these kind of things. Yeah, right winger, uh, serial plagiarist, and just kind of all around weirdo Benny Johnson has just been having a field day with it. At, at one point, very early in the day, Matt Binder, a uh, friend of the show, had a screen recording just scrolling through Benny's Twitter feed, and it was like, no joke, very, very soon after this happened had already had like 40 tweets out about it <laughs> like just like yeah. this was his super bowl yeah, he, he was he was breathlessly reporting just a few months ago that the true to <laughs> the evil trudeau communist regime was going to be overthrown by the noble truckers and history books <laughs> would remember their beautiful sacrifice and lo and behold that has not yet come to pass sometimes i'm not sure this guy's really got the rest the best political analysis <laughs> i don't know no, he's a kook. Um, but you know who's not a kook? Adam Ooh. Conover. Yeah, I love that. Who joins guy. us today on the show. That was such a good conversation. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was um, really good stuff. We were just saying, not to disparage any of our previous guests. Okay, we love all our guests. It is nice. I will say this: it's nice to have someone who talks professionally for a living mm-hmm. to have them come on. It was, it was a nice, you know, again, we, we love our guests. Some of, some of you need to do better, though. Some of you some need to pick it up. Some a little bit less. Yeah. Pick it and up, Ken. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so maybe this could be an example for some of the other, I don't need to name names besides Ken. I mean, we, you, know, we can, you know who you are. That's, that's a given, yeah. Yeah. You can just listen to this episode, listen to Adam talk about this kind of stuff. You maybe take a couple notes. And next time, hopefully we can kind of improve the... the 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 guest situation no but it was a it was a really great conversation i'm really happy we were able to to have him on it was really cool really cool to talk to him 
just fantastic and his show the g word with adam conover is on netflix now i loved it i think i told you about it when i was watching it like i just really wanted to get him on because the show is really really entertaining and informative we go through that show we go through the progressive wins in los angeles and talk about like you know the importance of getting involved in the local level and not just kind of in a 10,000 foot view as so many people and definitely myself included have like just kind of thrown out at the end of like a bitch session just like ah this is all negative okay yeah just get involved with the local level there's your solution but Adam explicitly talks about the how and the why and how to just change how you see your community how you see politics and how you ultimately see yourself so it's a really really good conversation listen through to the end i think you'll really appreciate it yep. uh, before we get there want to remind people the last episode with judd legum last premium episode is is really good as well judd tracks corporate donations to politicians and right now in pride month you see a ton of companies changing their profile pictures to rainbow flags we all know it's insincere we know it's bullshit. He tracks the dollars, too. So we have a good conversation about that, get into a little of the January 6th hearing, and you probably remember corporations were pausing their donations to Republicans right after January 6th. So we talk about where those companies are now with their political donations. If you want to hear that, you can head to theinsurgents.substack.com, become a premium subscriber, get access to that premium episode and all the ones before it. Um, and you'll just be supporting the show, which we which we appreciate. Yes, we do. That's a good, we get good setup. Let's get to him. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's do it. Adam Conover will be joining the program right after this. question that we started these interviews off <laughs> we ask everybody okay and the answer is critical to the success of this conversation so it's your picture yourself if you picture yourself right now it's like you're in one of those sinister offices where there's like a a trap door under you and my our fingers are hovering over the trap door oh, oh no okay all right that's the level that's what we're operating at right Ooh, now. Yeah. all right down yeah. the garbage we don't chute fuck around. unless i get this right yeah <laughs> Or a vacuum tube, either. Well, that would also work. <laughs> well, either one, yeah. Adam Conover, are you a gamer? Yes. Oh, hey. That was so easy. Great. Yeah. Great. Uh, what have you been playing? Uh, let's see. I have been playing Elden Ring since it came out. Uh, I, I played, I'm at 100 hours and I still haven't finished it because I'm doing sort of everything. <laughs> Before I left on my recent uh, tour leg, I'm, I'm out in Phoenix doing stand-up right now. Uh, before I did that, I had just gotten to what I believe are the final couple bosses that I'm going to go fight. Um, but I was also taking a short break to play a little V Rising, which is a, uh, a vampire. It's like a kind of a cooperative Diablo vampire survival base builder. Um, and it's pretty fun. Uh, so I've been, you know, uh, playing that. I, I try to sort of keep up with everything. I try to play literally everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've, I've noticed that. I, I remember when Frostpunk came out, you were pretty quick on that. And Valheim, you Ooh. had that uh, on yes. your belt. Valheim, great time. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> seasoned gamer. I'm a seasoned <laughs> gamer. Yeah. 
it's, um, it's you know it's the greatest art form of of the century. It's our it's you know it's like being <laughs> around. It's like being around for the birth of film. You know, or would you really want to miss it? Would you really want to miss seeing Metropolis the first time it's in the theater? No, you wouldn't. You would want to be there for it. And that's how I feel about V Rising, the vampire survival uh, base builder. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think the best game you've played over the past 10 years, 10 years is? Oh, God. Uh, Oh, boy. uh, I... The one that I said last time I was asked this question that I arrived at that I have the most admiration for is um, Outer Wilds is like a truly remarkable achievement. Have you played Outer Wilds? I played – I had like 10, 20 hours in it and this was during the pandemic and I can't remember why I stopped. But So I have a little bit of progress but it was – I remember it being beautiful. Like yeah, really, it's really go- beautiful. It's gorgeous. And now you you know what we are talking about Outer Wilds, not Outer Worlds, which is a worse game. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm in Worlds. I have okay. not played Wilds. Okay. I was like, I was like, it just sounds you got I, I got tw- 10 or 20 hours into it. I'm like, this sounds like you're talking about Outer Worlds, which is Outer a Worlds shitty a shitty Fallout knockoff. Um that, Yes, but it was beautiful. It, I'm sure. But you know, the first time I played that game and it was like Hey, I'm the mutated gangster. Welcome to mutated gangster town. You want to go clean the basement out of some rats? I was like, I'm not playing this shit. Uh, <laughs> like, we don't need to. We don't need to be doing this. Um, Outer Wilds is an incredible uh, work of art, Jordan. That <laughs> is, uh, uh, Outer Worlds is this incredible game where um, it takes place in a tiny simulated uh, solar system. And uh, the solar system is like perfectly modeled. So you take off, it's like sort of Little Prince style planets. You take off in your spaceship in 3D and you go towards another planet and you start to fall under its gravity and you can orbit it or you can land on it, etc. Um but the game is entirely a puzzle solving game. It's mist style puzzles where it's environmental storytelling and you know you land on the planet and you say, "Oh, how does this machine work? What happened here?" you know, etc. Um, and it uh, it's it, and the last the last little bit of the the thesis is that it the game is on a time loop. So, uh, you know, these planets circle around the sun, you know, however many times. And then after about 20 minutes or so, the game starts you over again um, and you start to sort of learn how, OK, over the course of that 20 minutes, like this planet changes in this way. It starts to fall into a black hole or it starts to get closer to the sun or, you know, this or that happens. And you sort of start understanding how the planets act and using your knowledge of that to um, uh, get further into the game. And the really cool thing about it is that all of the gatekeeping in the game, all the progress is not done by, you know, in most games you get a key, you get an item, and that lets you get past the the door, you know. In this game, all of the, uh, all of the uh, progress you make happens in your own mind. You learn something new about the world, and then that allows you to move through it more fluidly to unlock a door next time you encounter it. Um, and so it's a, it's a game where instead of making you feel smart, it actually makes you be smart because you actually end up learning about the world around you. And then it has just this incredible story about the end of the world and how one makes a life for oneself knowing that the world is about to end, um, which is like a really heavy theme, but is really like beautifully uh, rendered. And it's a first time game by all the developers, which makes it like really remarkable. So it's just like, you know, uh, really, really, really top, top, top in video games in the last 10 years, I'd say. Sounds awesome. That sounds really cool. Rob, have you played that? No, I have not. 
Well, no. you guys. So, so it turns out I'm the only gamer yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, you are. You're making us look bad. <laughs> I'm going to edit all that, all that, all that insightful yeah, stuff smart, you just said. Smart. Yeah, I should be asking you. Are you gamers? <laughs> Apparently uh, not. Yeah, Fortnite counts. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't been. I haven't um, been gaming much lately. I did just see uh, Lightyear today, though. Oh, okay, that's a that's that. a movie. You, you're aware yeah. of that? Yeah, yeah. No, it's not a game. Not a yeah, game. Okay, but just in terms of the overall kind of pop culture chit chat before we dive into everything, that's where yeah. I'm at with that. Oh, right. oh got it. Right there. That's that's like the groomer movie. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you know the movie's fine, but that's the thing. I I went with my kid, and now he's he instantly became a lesbian. Wow. Oh, which is, okay. Yikes. I guess that's how that works. What is the game moment in the movie that people are mad about? It's it's the most fucking innocuous thing. It's truly amazing, I think, the extent to which people are... I mean, we went, we went over this in the last episode, but just the, the extent to which people are getting very comfortable, um, you know, criticizing any, any representation of any same-sex couple or any same-sex family or any anyone that's even remotely part of the LGBTQIA... Uh, spectrum is being presented as this like evil insidious uh plot that's like harms kids Mm -hmm. just to like and it's literally in the movie it's it's probably it it takes up about 45 seconds of overall screen time just suggesting that one of the characters is in a same-sex relationship and that's all it's just literally there you get a few images of a family um with two with two moms and you get a few little glimpses of that, and that's that's it, that's the end of it. And is but, either of these characters a main character in the movie? Um, kind of. It's kind of in the in the. I don't want to get too far into spoiler territory for Lightyear, in case you two are planning on seeing it. But <laughs> oh my god, it, is he a toy? It turns out he's a toy. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing turns <laughs> oh, out. Oh god, I was that's the no! thing. I was very confused. I went to see it, and I was like, "Where are the toys? I don't understand what's going on here." <laughs> very confusing. Um, <laughs> no, uh, no, but it's, I'm, it's, I'm Buzz's, it's Buzz Lightyear's like Space Ranger partner in the open the opening like fifteen twenty minutes of the movie. Okay, is is in a same sex relationship, and that's that's it's not really major plot point or anything. It's just a, it's a a few seconds of screen time that suggests this, and you have conservatives now just losing their minds over the fact that this is you know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the big problem is, but hey, okay. I mean, it's the amount of the amount of like energy that is put into Disney's portrayal of LGBT characters is just like, why is this the only political battlefield left in America? Why are we spending all of our time on this? And and the 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 funny thing about it is that like to me, they are really getting both ends of the barrel that that metaphor makes no sense but uh, it's a mixed metaphor but uh you know if, if you remember because they've been taking shit for years from the lgbt community about their like really wimpy ass approach to doing representation like do you remember how in um they were like in the the most recent star wars movie the the really really shitty one um where mm-hmm. uh, i i can't remember anything about the movie frankly except for this moment they're like after they've like defeated you know the em- the emperor for yeah. the last time they've defeated him like for time number six and they're all celebrating and then it just cuts to like poe and finn are like hugging each other or whatever and then the background it just cuts to two never before seen com- unnamed <laughs> uh women in flight suits who you see from the back and they kiss each other for like half a second just like two, literally two background actors, you know, are like you two. Just like 
you know, do like a stagey kiss as though you're in a high school play and you can't touch lips, <laughs> just like embrace in such a way that you might be kissing. But the camera lingered on it for just long enough that you could tell that they were like, eh, eh, does this make you happy? Look, a kiss. And I think they even tried to go like, we have the first on-screen gay kiss in a Star Wars movie. And people were like, what the fuck is this weak ass <laughs> bullshit? <laughs> this is nothing. This is less than nothing. This is worse than if you did nothing to try to like pass this off as representation. And so, you know, I think that, that's very funny. But then they try to go, okay. We'll drag our feet and like, fine, here's a photo implying a character is gay in a deeper way. And now Ben Shapiro fucking goes after them, you know, Uh, and it's just like they're getting, you know, they should have a spine and actually do what's right, which is like showing representation. Sure, that's the right thing to do. But also like the amount of fucking you know, nuclear weaponry of discourse that's aimed at these dumbass movies is just like completely out of proportion to anything. Right. Like they're just doing it to be relatable and reflect your life because yeah. that's, yeah, we, it's just, we all know people who are in that community and that's just life now. So Disney's just reflecting life in some ways. It, what people really wanted was Poe and Finn to be, uh, yes. relationship which would have been cool that um, would have been much more they, interesting disney chickened out i mean they chickened out of so many things in that movie yeah they chickened out <sighs> on making finn like a a worthwhile character that contributes meaningfully to the to the story which was kind of suge- which was an, another flashpoint of like culture war stuff when he was first oh, yeah. revealed to be the character and of course that resulted in this big racist backlash cool. Rose and they fa- failed they failed yeah. even to ter- turn him into a meaningful character in any way. Yeah, they 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 removed Kelly Marie Tran from the movie because like she had previously been in the previous movie quite a lot and then she received like a racist backlash and then Disney in response was like, "Oh no, racist people hate her. We better take her out of the movie." And mm-hmm. In the next book, they didn't just write her out of the movie. They like wrote a whole scene where another character is like, Rose Tico, you're not coming on the mission. Your job is shoveling manure now because you suck <laughs> and everybody hates you. And then they have like a shot of her looking sad. And then she like, you know, throws up and slips her own barf and falls in yeah. a puddle of poop and everybody laughs at her. Yeah. You know, like, her neck. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they like just, they, they just like murdered her on screen because some people on Twitter like didn't like her, um, which is the worst. I mean, Kelly Marie, Marie Tran is a friend of mine. She was she used to be on Adam Ruins Everything when we got started. Um, and like then she was casting a Star Wars movie and I was like, oh, uh, I'll never see her again. Goodbye. Goodbye. Go off to, you know, celebrity land. And, um, uh, you know, that she was treated with such disrespect by them because they were like the, the degree to which Disney allows themselves to be whipsawed by public opinion is like fully on them. You know, like fucking Ryan Johnson. Right. I liked his movie. If you don't like his movie, that's fine. At least that the man the made one. choices. That was the good one. I, it was interesting. It was weird. Luke Skywalker drinks on the rest. Yeah, Luke Skywalker drinks alien milk from an alien tit. Awesome. I love it. Luke Skywalker is a piece of whiny bullshit. Yeah, because that's what he always was. He always sucked as a character. You know, like there was interesting stuff going on there. And then they... The, because the response to that, they just like retconned his entire movie. They just went like, no, that didn't that didn't happen. That no, yeah. everything that he set up in his movie actually, like literally, Wait, you, you, know, want to, you want to see Luke lifting up the the X wing with the force powers? Look, now you get it in this movie, right? They see you should be happy now. It's just Come fan on, service. Yeah. It's all fan yeah. service. Yeah, 
And like, you know, when, when uh, Ryan Johnson goes, you know, in his movie, what's her face? Ray, your parents are nobody, right? That's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting creative decision. We're, we're yeah. undoing all this bullshit of Star Wars where everybody has to be the child of anybody else to be interesting, you know? So we're just like, no, she's just her own person. And then the be- beginning of the next movie, they're like, I am the empire, emperor and I am back. And also <laughs> your parents were nobody in the sense that they were my children, <laughs> you know? Like just trying to sort of rewrite the sentence from the previous movie doesn't even make sense that it, it, it would have been put that way in the movie. Like it doesn't even make sense as canon. Um, and mm-hmm. it's it, just like fucking have a little bit of spine about your own fucking decisions, you know? Yeah. It's so pathetic. Well, it's just, just the idea that like you have this big multi-billion dollar franchise and there doesn't seem to be any plan for like a trilogy. <laughs> and it's instant yeah. rather than like having a basic story that you get that carries through three movies, a basic outline, you end up being this like this multi-movie creative slap fight between different corporate interests and different yeah. filmmakers and stuff. That's like, what was for. This is awful. That's what that was. That's what was amazing to me about that. Because and look, I, I, is this why you guys had me on the show to do Disney discourse yes, like exactly a year right. and a half correct. late, yeah. two or three years mm-hmm. afterwards? We haven't talked enough about Last Jedi on the internet. I think so. We're trying to <laughs> well. Here's what rectify that. Here's what fascinated me about the movie. It was so. It was almost like the room where you're like, you're like, I'm fascinated by how this came to be. How was this yeah. able to happen? Because to me, the whole promise of Disney was that okay, they are resurrecting all your favorite properties from the grave, and they are doing it in a sheerly competent way. You like the Muppets? Here's the Muppets. They're back, and you're going to have them every single year until you die. The Muppets are never going away. You're just getting good enough Muppets forever, right? You like the Marvel characters? Here they are. There's a new movie once a month until you die. All the movies are good enough, you know? And, like, they proved that. Like, the Marvel movies are, like, the whole cinematic universe stuff is done very deftly. The movies are, like, all a C plus. But, you know, you get high and you eat some popcorn, you're fine. You know, and you're like, oh, they all fit together. That's kind of neat. And so to me, the whole promise of it was that they were going to address these things with some amount of fan competency. That fans who constantly felt, oh, our favorite properties are not taken seriously by the industry and they're not given any attention and we're all always upset. Disney said, okay, we're going to do that for you. And then to see them fuck it up with the biggest property on such a massive scale in a way that like made no sense even as corporate decision making to do it that way i was like how did they suddenly get so stupid all at once it was like incredible to me that it even happened and what i am still craving is like what's the oral history of like how that shit fucked up you know uh, like I, who's the reporter who is going to go talk to all the executives and like get the real story of, you know, the behind the scenes battle of, you know, Ryan Johnson being made to walk the plank and, you know, uh, and all that shit. Uh, cause it's, it, it's bizarre that it went down that way. Uh, Rob, anything else you want to add on Disney? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no. I mean, I think, I think just, to reiterate what we touched on last week when we talked about this, just how it's amazing how Disney. <laughs> you talked about this last week. We well, just, the, 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 the hollow the, pride overtures. Yeah, and just the way that Disney has tried to walk this line between yeah. having this basic representation while also kind of trying to play both sides of the culture war and how it just keeps on blowing up in their faces. And even when they try to make these pathetic, like these barely 
these barely even there handouts to the multi marginalized communities to be like, here, look, you've got representation in there too. So you should come to, and even with this bare minimum effort that they've made to be a little slightly more inclusive, um, it's still not enough for these like weird uh, conservatives that all that's all this culture war shit is all they care about. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's kind of, it is kind of amusing watching them kind of flail and try and find this balance, which is just never going to exist. Yeah. And unfortunately it's also just uh, makes it very clear how much, you know, the right is like, it's almost beyond culture war now. It's that they have now started an anti-civil rights movement, you know? And so they're just like, okay, if the left, if or not even the left, if like, you know, marginalized people are going to, you know, make a claim for more inclusion, more representation, more voting rights, we are for the opposite of that. Like we are going to march backwards on the bridge to Selma, you know, we are going to yeah. uh, undo everything. And they're, you know, so th- they're doing it in a very targeted way. And it unfortunately seems uh, quite successful because you can't imagine that like Disney doesn't notice this shit, you know, like I, I think it's going to be effective, unfortunately. Yeah, I saw today at the Texas GOP convention, they re-added a clause in the Republican platform there that explicitly condemns homosexuality as an, a, like a repulsive behavior, a repugnant behavior, a lifestyle choice, something like that, um, after having previously removed it uh, mm-hmm. in 2016, I think. So, yeah, like, I mean, to your point, they're just totally regressing on like very, very small incremental things they did to avoid public scrutiny. But the floodgates are open. Like you've got people just straight up calling for violence against trans people. So, yeah, Republicans see, hey, all right, it's fair game again. Let's go, which is horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it'll take a better political studies professor than me to, you know, explain what exactly is going on. But, you know, to me, it was. Uh, in, in my lifetime, the national shift on gay rights and gay marriage, like it happened, you know, when I was when I was in high school, you know, I had one friend who was out gay in the entire high school and she was very brave to do so. And she like ch- started a chapter of flag in our school. You know what I mean? And then I went to college and I had friends who were gay, but it was very much like, you know, we're the insurgents, you know, believing in gay rights and then seeing the speed at which it, you know, overtook the whole country. And, you know, we achieved like what felt like unity about it to the extent that like, you know, every corporation in America does pride events and shit was like astonishing to me, astonishing speed um, for that kind of social change, especially when, you know, progress on like civil rights for black Americans has been so incredibly slow. Um, like it's uh, just this very shocking contrast. Um, but I never expected that we would see that progress like just reverse so fast um and that we'd see one party just go like yeah no we're doing like the 90s again you know we're going right back to that shit um and i'm not entirely sure why that is or if it's going to be successful i certainly hope it isn't but it's like it is really some holy shit stuff right right uh, but you are a good uh explainer of politics in your new show <laughs> very <laughs> nice segue, right thank you oh this is great uh, <laughs> and your new show the g word with adam conover is on netflix now i just watched it last week and just to kind of give you some context for how big of a tv person i am i'm just now watching breaking bad so the fact that i watched this like const like just straight through in like a day and a half it's not it's not like super long but like that's a lot of tv for me i loved it i really really loved it could you Thank give you. listeners who haven't seen it yet uh, an overview uh, of what it is and what it's about and why they should watch watch 
Sure. Um, so the G Word is a comedy documentary series about the government and how it works. Um, and uh, so we tell you all the ways that the government affects your life, both good and bad, uh, break down, you know, parts of American life that are, uh, you know, literally upheld by government programs that most of us aren't aware of or massive changes that happen in American history because of uh, government programs that we're not aware of. Um, and ways that the government affects our lives in bad ways. Um, and we also go introduce folks. I do, we do field pieces where I go meet you know, government employees who make the country run and have these like crazy jobs. So I go to a Cargill meat processing facility and we meet the, the meat inspectors who are on the line every single day, touching all of our meat, making sure it's not full of foodborne illnesses. Um, and I fly through Hurricane Sam with a Air Force Hurricane Hunter plane, which they fly in order to, you know, figure out where hurricanes are so that we can predict <laughs> their motions and know when to evacuate low-lying areas. Um, we, but we also talk, for instance, about like how FEMA is so terribly structured and how it fails Americans time and time again. Uh, and, and then in the last episode, we make an effort to answer the question, how do we change our government when our government is not serving us or when it's hurting us, um, as it so often is? The hurricane episode is so cool. Uh, I've always kind of wondered Thank what you. the eye of a hurricane uh, looks like. And mm -hmm. in this show, you see one. It's so it's so cool. What was that yeah. like? I mean, it was incredible. So we flew up with the uh, with the Air Force Hurricane Hunters. Uh, the, the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, Administration, also flies into hurricanes. But we went up with the Air Force. And uh, we actually had to go up twice because the first time we went up, the hurricane did not form. <laughs> so we ended up <laughs> flying around the Atlantic through a lot of turbulence, uh, very, you know, nauseatingly, but without getting any of the images we needed or without being able to say that we actually flew through a hurricane. The second time we went up, we went through Hurricane Sam, which was a named storm, a full hurricane. But it uh, in 2021, it never made landfall. So it didn't really make the news much. But, um, you know, it sort of swerved out right over the Atlantic. Um, but, you know, the, the Air Force still has to fly missions through the hurricane anyway, because the reason they do this um, is to measure wind speed uh, and other conditions, and then specifically to find out where the exact center of the hurricane is. So as they're flying through, you know, they're getting data and they're saying, OK, the winds are shifting this way, they're shifting that way, go a little left, go a little right. And the reason they do that is to try to find the exact center where the hurricane is totally still. Um, and by doing that over and over again, they can calculate how fast the hurricane is moving. And that is why when you look at the weather channel and you see the hurricane, you know, approaching uh, the coast of Florida or Louisiana um, and you see how it's moving over time and where it's going to move in the future. The only reason they have that data is because there is a plane at the moment you're watching flying through the hurricane over and over again. Then that plane lands when it runs out of fuel. A new plane takes off and does the same thing. It's fucking bonkers. So it's amazing when, when we, it's incredible. And so when we were flying through, I mean, it's it's amazing. You're, you're flying through these like gray clouds. It's super turbulent. Most p planes try to go around turbulence. This plane flies directly into turbulence so they can measure the turbulence. Uh, and, you know, it's this big cargo plane. There's almost no seating. You're just sort of walking around, you know, grabbing onto metal bars when you need to, uh, stepping over trip hazards, you know, walking by. There's these, you know, uh, Air Force officers who are, you know, work for the science team or the weather team, or whatever. They're, they're all looking at radars and things. Um, it's very much almost like a spaceship crew, if you can imagine, like, in a normal, like, uh, just because there's, like, literally somebody looking at, like, a spinning radar thing, like, calling in coordinates to the pilot, you know, uh, 
And uh, so in any case, you're in sort of gray out conditions where you can't see anything. Um, and there's like rain on the windshield and you're shaking all around. And then suddenly you break through the eye wall and it's suddenly completely clear. And you can see all the way up from the sky where you, there's sun streaming down all the way down to the ocean where it's, you know, it's just blue below you. And then a mile in front of you, there's just a mile high wall of clouds stretching just up into the atmosphere. Um, and it's it's spectacular. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. it and, and it was such a privilege to go. It was like... Um, felt like going to the moon or something or to the bottom of the Marianas Trench or, you know, it's like mm-hmm. going to see one of the most powerful natural forces on Earth. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something I'll never get to do again in my life, whereas these folks who work for the government, like, do it every single day. Yeah, I thought that was just a really interesting uh, and captivating way to illustrate, among the other uh, the other things, the people who you would never know about and yeah. how they make the government run. Uh, yeah. But and, and on the topic of weather, that was the episode I think really blew me away. Um, uh, it was just I, the attacks on the National Weather Service. Mm-hmm. I had no idea this was happening. And one of the you know one of the big players uh, in that is AccuWeather, and they've yeah. done everything from you know try to you basically they're using you know weather service data and information and then they're trying to turn around and say okay but the government can't relay that relay that to the public we have to have yes. a private middleman and the consequences you lay out for that can be devastating could you could you talk about how this is happening you know this this private interference yeah. in a public good yeah so the national weather service if you're not familiar is you know it's a public agency. Uh, It has hundreds of weather observation posts employing thousands of scientists around the country, and they produce all the weather data and forecasts that you will ever see. Like open an app on your phone, turn on the local news, look at that forecast. That forecast is coming from the National Weather Service. Um, They are constantly monitoring conditions. They are analyzing it. They are, you know, putting out, uh, they call them products, different, you know, weather forecast products. Um, and those are freely available for anyone to use. So they're used by air traffic controllers. They're used by ships at sea. They're used by, you know, amateur pilots. They're used by, uh, you know, all parts of the, you know, various industries rely on them. And then, of course, the media, um, which, uh, you know, communicates them to the public and sort of fancies them up, adds some graphics. You know, a broadcaster will read them on the news, etc. Now, you know, your local meteorologist on your local news station has some media meteorology training, they're probably interpreting some of the data themselves, right? But if the National Weather Service weren't there, that person would have no data to work from. You know, the the lo- your local television station fundamentally is not a weather science institute. You know what I mean? It's a TV station. It's broadcasting data from the National Weather Service, as are the Weather Channel and AccuWeather. Both of those organizations, again, they have meteorologists who they employ. They do do some data collecting on their own, but it's all on top of what the National Weather Service does. It's a sprinkling on top that differentiates their products from each other. Um, and so what they what they are fundamentally doing, in a sense, is taking public weather data and public forecasts that we have already paid for via our tax dollars, um, and then they are asking the public to pay for them again as part of your, your cable package or, you know, you buy a copy of USA Today, and USA Today is getting its weather report from AccuWeather, so you're paying for, you know, for AccuWeather that way, right? Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, 
because, you know, that's like what the data is for. It's a public good. And so if someone wants to resell it, they are certainly more than able to. Um, But the problem is that AccuWeather, the company, has for decades seen the National Weather Service as competition. And they have worked to try to reduce uh, the ability of the National Weather Service to communicate with the public directly. So Barry Myers, the CEO of AccuWeather, um, for instance, got himself a number of years ago on an oversight panel for either NOAA or the National Weather Service, I forget which, but he was on this panel. And he was able to uh, kill the Weather Service developing a free public app. So, like, the Weather Service wanted to make an app that you could just use, right, to get your weather data, uh, to get your weather forecast. And Barry Myers was able to prevent them from doing so. And let's be clear. This is not bad just because, you know, you wouldn't have access to this app that, you know, would give you the forecast you can get from some other free app. What's really bad about this is that the National Weather Service is primarily responsible for severe weather warnings and alerts. Um, So there's a tornado on the way, uh, there's a risk of severe flooding, etc. And in fact, if you just go to look at the Twitter account for your local National Weather Service, you know, um, like the one in Los Angeles, the one in D.C. where you are, um, and you will see that they will, you know, there, there are scientists there who are posting, hey, the next couple days, watch out for this red flag warning or, you know, floodwaters are going to rise, stuff like that. Like they're mostly concerned with making sure that people don't die. And so if we had access to that app, you know, if you could add the National Weather Service app, you would be able to get those alerts much more easily. Right. Instead of having them go through some middleman like Apple or whatever. Right. Um So AccuWeather has been able to prevent them from doing that. And they have also, uh, for years, tried to lobby for laws that would prevent the National Weather Service from communicating with anyone but commercial weather providers like AccuWeather. Uh, They famously got Rick Santorum, Rick Santorum when he was still a senator, to sponsor a bill that would have – uh, prevented the National Weather Service from communicating directly with the public. And that bill was killed, um, but it was like very clearly, you know, sponsored directly by AccuWeather. Um, and then most recently, Barry Myers tried to get himself appointed to uh, as the head of NOAA um, and, you know, by Trump uh, and, and which, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, he, he's the CEO of AccuWeather. He should know something about the weather, right? Except that his whole goal was to privatize the Weather Service. Now, that appointment never went through. And I, I don't know exactly why. My guess would be there's enough senators in Congress who, like, know what the Weather Service does, right? And that we need the Weather Service as an apolitical, you know, non-privatized entity because everyone relies on it so fucking much. And there is a little bit of, you know, in Congress, institutional support for things like that still. If you go ask even some of the crazier senators, they know that shit, right? But mm-hmm. um, it, it hasn't stopped it from being a, a war that they've waged and they've actually, you know, been able to – uh, you know, stop the weather service from communicating with the public. And and the last bit about this is that, you know, there are examples um, of times when AccuWeather has uh, issued tornado warnings that were only available if you could pay for them. Um, so like literally if you're a paying AccuWeather subscriber, it's absurd, right? There's a tornado coming, but only if you pay us $10 a month do you get to find out, right? Um, and well, that what, is, I think you're, what I think you're overlooking here, though, Adam, is that it's mm. the same thing as as counting COVID deaths. If you want COVID COVID <laughs> cases to go down, you just stop counting them. If you're ah. concerned about climate change, just stop paying attention to what the what the weather is, and then you're not. Yes. It's fine. You're not going to be able to to tell. So very good point. Really, uh, I and think that, you've yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perhaps we could cut down on all these damaging tornadoes if people just didn't know about them. Absolutely. Yeah. Precisely. <laughs> So, there's so a, yeah, there's so, a genius to it that I don't I think you're missing. <laughs> so, you know, I'll help you with my totally inane contribution. No, not at all. <laughs> not, not at all. I, 
I was gonna say the, the the point of this show is to sort of you know is to demonstrate that there are certain things that only the government can provide. Public goods like this can only be provided by the government. No private entity can fly planes through hurricanes or run, you know, a, a weather data collecting apparatus on the scale that the government can and distribute it to the public for free. That is not something that a capitalist business is capable of doing, and it is something that needs to be done. So it's something that we need the government to do, um, and. Uh, if you know, it, yet that duty is under threat all the time, and it's under threat from private businesses. It's also under threat from you know structural problems. We talk about, for instance, in that same episode, how FEMA is misstructured as an agency, which means it has failed time and again to, you know, as we say, even bring bottled water to people who need them in Puerto Rico. Uh, when you know, how how is it possible our government can fly a plane through a hurricane but can't bring bottled water to Puerto Rico? It's because FEMA is misstructured as an agency, um, and you know. If we were to fix those problems, we might have the agency that we need. Um, and then the government is also uh, you know, undermined by the campaign, the dedicated campaign to make us lose faith in our government. You know, the, the folks who have preached privatization and have preached a smaller government and have said the government can't do anything. That's a propaganda campaign that we've lived under since the Reagan years, and it's been enormously successful. And so we're trying to push back against that and to you know, tell folks, like, here's why what the government does fucking matters. Yeah, and I think it's like it's important right now to be demystifying some of that, considering how important not just to the conservative movement, but to sort of the neoliberal movement in general has been to kind of demonize the very idea of government doing anything at all or to suggest that any time the government is involved in anything, it's automatically inefficient, bureaucratic, it doesn't work. And I think people have really uh, internalized that idea. Like uh, a lot of people across the political spectrum, I think mainly conservatives, but it's not an exclusively conservative phenomenon. So I think it is really yeah. important to, I think, have a way to to point out to people that these functions are actually extremely important. And like you yeah. point out, it can only be, this gap can only be filled by the public sector. And there's no, there's not, there's not these private sector solutions to any, to all these all these different problems. Yeah, I mean, the the idea that the government is inefficient and ineffective has just been in the water that we've drank for the last fifty years. You know, as I say on the show, I remember my mom saying to me as a kid, uh, "Oh yeah, the government is a lot less a lot less efficient than private businesses." I just remember her saying that, and that was just something that she had absorbed from just you know watching television, right? From just reading Newsweek. It was just an idea that was out there, um, and it's because we've been living under the Reagan regime since the eighties, when Reagan won. You know, literally. Not every state. He won like, what, 48 states or something like that in 1980. Uh, and then again, four years later. Uh, and, you know, the, the the reason was this this idea just like spread very popularly that we had too much government. And, you know, we've been we've been living with it. And it's a it's a meme. It's a it's an ideology that we need to start chipping away at and pushing back on because it's it's not true. And it's very harmful to our way of life. Yeah. So you have been, uh, I think, making the rounds talking to uh, different organizations and and parts of the the federal government and um, at different aspects of the bu- bureaucracy how has this been received because I, I I went to um, graduate school and got an MPA and that was like all I focused on right it was just how do we make the government better how do we make it more efficient and it was like it was at a public school with a public um, interest focus so it wasn't like how do we celebrate public private partnerships it's the bureaucracy is good how do we make it better and you could just sense the frustration among the professors among my classmates that like people are tired of this 
type of attack, um, you know, starting with Reagan and and through now on the government and and all of these characteristics you both laid out that they try to demonize it uh, it with. That frustration I feel like is probably even more prevalent in the government and in these organizations itself. So how has this show and in your interactions with them, how is it being received? I would imagine they're deeply appreciative. <laughs> uh, most of them are, yeah. You know, there's there's only one agency that's not happy with us, and that's the USDA, because we showed <sighs> both the incredible work that the USDA does um, in uh, our nation's meatpacking facilities that, you know, we have meat inspectors on the line who are there every single day making sure the meat is not diseased, which I think is still a remarkable intervention. I mean, American factory farming is an abomination, but, yeah. uh, you know, the fact that we are not constantly getting E. coli from it is because back in the 20s, we made this decision to force every single meatpacker in America to have government employees on the line monitoring them every single day. And those employees literally have the ability to hit a big red button and stop the line whenever they want. They can literally shut the factory down at any point in the day when they see something that's wrong, right? And uh, that is like, uh, by today's standards, a pretty remarkable feat, right? If you If you looked at any uh, any, if you propose doing that for any business that's fucking with people today, imagine, you know, it saying, Hey, we're going to send government inspectors into Facebook every single day to make sure that, you know, Facebook isn't like, stir, you know, fomenting racism, or we're going to send, uh, government inspectors into Tesla every single day to make sure that Tesla isn't lying to NHTSA about its self-driving cars or pick any company, right. That is like doing some malfeasance like this. Um, you know, you'd be, you'd be laughed out of the room. People would say this is un-American yet. We did it to the meat industry. The system is still in place and it is, uh, you know, as a result, we're not dying of foodborne illnesses. Um, so we make that case, but we also then go on to talk about how the USDA is, you know, uh, captured in many ways by the uh, big agriculture industry, how they give subsidies to crops that are, you know, making us unhealthy, about how they have they're engaged in pilot programs to reduce the number of inspectors at their at the request of the industry. A lot of problems like that. So USDA overall is a little bit like, um, you know, oh, we, we they don't. There's people there who maybe don't love the show as much because we called them out. Uh, the other agencies are like thrilled, you know, um, the FDIC, who we talk about their incredible work regulating the banks, um, the, uh, you know, uh, the National Hurricane Center, NOAA. Um, I, I mean, these are these are people who, uh, you know, don't get the opportunity to tell their own story the way that they wish they could. One, one really fascinating thing is that if you go on the internet, if you go to nasa.gov, you will see the best website you've ever seen, right? You will just geek out about space. There's like news, there's photos, there's videos, right? NASA is just fucking awesome. And the reason is that NASA, part of the purpose was always a PR, PR exercise from the beginning. The point of NASA was to show off how great the American government is in our, you know, sort of like PR war against Russia. Um, and, uh, and that's continued to this day. So as a result, NASA has like a PR budget, you know, they they have a marketing budget. Um, they, they are able to make their logo famous and awesome, you know, but the other agencies are never given that money. They're never, you know, no one in Congress is approving them to, you know, spend $10 million just explaining why the national weather service is great. Um, and as a result, we don't know that, that, uh, you know, what these agencies do. 
Um, and so they were very happy for us to come in, you know, on Netflix with, you know, by the way, the Obamas executive produced the show. So um, with them as executive producers, you know, uh, all of that weight behind us, you know, elevating their work and showing it to people. Um, they produced and- this show as well. So that's uh- crossover yes. <laughs> yeah oh they produce oh they produce yeah, your yeah. show yeah yeah, yeah keeping it in the family yeah yeah that's really cool i didn't know you guys were um liberal shills too that's awesome <laughs> yeah, oh yeah big yeah. time yeah. Of course. <laughs> uh you know and, and i can address that quick I, I never like to bring that up without saying this by the way that when we um uh, when i started doing the show so this, this show came about because barack and michelle obama optioned michael lewis's book the fifth risk michael lewis the wonderful journalist i had read the book um, previously and you know they said hey do you want to come in and pitch on the book and I was like of course I do the book's incredible um, and I came in and pitched on the book and we decided to go ahead and do the show together and when we started I made clear to them like I, I need independent I need editorial independence when I make the show because I can't be seen this show will not work if it is seen by the audience as being you know Obama machine propaganda um, which is what most people will think it is unless you, you know, make it clear that it is not. And they understood that and granted it. And we did a scene about that at the beginning of the show, making that clear to the audience. And there's a lot of portions in the show where like we are critical of the Obama administration or certainly taking angles that are different than what, you know, Barack Obama would want to say on such and such a topic. Um, and, uh, as a result, it is a show that, you know, I, I feel we were, able to my standards to be able to, you know, tell these stories with integrity in the same way that when I was not doing Adam ruins everything on true TV, you know, we were doing stories about advertising, even though we were on advertising supported television, you know, there's no, um, no ethical consumption under capitalism and no, uh, pure media production either. You just do the best you can. And I think we were able to do a, a good job here, making sure that we were not polluted by, you know, the political process. Um, but you know, folks can watch at home themselves and be the judge of that. One of those topics though, you, you did talk about, uh, the, you know, the, the research uh, that came out of, I think, DARPA mm-hmm. that led to drones, which led to mm-hmm. the drone program. And that is something yeah. that, you know, is a, is a stain on Obama's legacy. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just I think, yeah, it, like you're saying, it's it's kind of tough to do, navigate uh, in that scenario. But yeah, to include that when I know that's something that they don't want to they don't want a lot of people to remember uh, that was in there. And you explicitly talk about the rise during that period when he was president. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because that came out of our – it came naturally out of that episode. We are doing an episode about military technology and about how you know the government has invented so many of the incredible innovations that have transformed our lives like GPS, like the internet and like drones. Um, but they were all created for the purpose of warfare, for the purpose of killing people. That's like the thesis of that episode. And that's like something that we should feel very conflicted about as Americans that like you know GPS has – has transformed my life massively for the better. It's one of the greatest in- inventions in human history, like bar none, absolutely. But at the same time, it was it was invented to help target missiles. And so how do I feel about that as an American? You know, the fact that that's what my money goes towards, the fact that, um, you know, that's that is where all of my wonderful things came from. And drones happen to be one of the best examples of that uh, because, you know, they've – democratize the skies for millions, right? And also made it a lot more annoying to be at the park, but uh, (laughs) because someone's always flying a drone around. But at the same time, like, yeah, drones have killed thousands of civilians um, and they've invented a new kind of aerial warfare that wasn't even possible before because now a strike can be ordered without having to risk somebody's life. And as a result, those strikes are ordered a lot more often. And that's, you know, that's fucked up. (laughs) Um, And yeah, you know, like, 
that's not the story Obama would choose to tell, right? Um, it, he's on the record about his drone program. You can go find countless clips on YouTube. You can find him, you know, uh, uh, you know, you can find a college student yelling at him about it at a town hall, and then Obama talks for fifteen minutes about, well, here's my position, and here's why I think we made the best choice we could at the time, and blah, 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 you know, and he does his <laughs> he does his thing, right? And, you know, we've heard that. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that it's a response to the criticism that we give. Um, and uh, frankly, our criticism of the drone program is like a very mainstream one. Uh, it's something that, you know, really anybody who studies the topic arrives at. And so, you know, there, there was a point as we were making the show where, you know, his staff who we work with were like, well, you know, this isn't the Obama line on drones. And we were like, yeah, we know we disagree with that and that this is what we're doing. And, you know, that's what is in the show. Um, so, you know, for me, when I'm, when I'm doing one of these topics, you know, I like a fight. I sort of like to find the topic where, uh, you know, when the, when the show comes out, what is the thing that people are going to say? No way they're doing this on the show. No way they're doing this on the show. And in this case, that was drones. And it was very fun for me because when our trailer, not our trailer, when the show announcement came out, we were already deep into working on the scripts. And people would tweet at me like, oh, you're working on a show with Obama, huh? Where's the segment about drones? But you're not going to do a segment about <laughs> drones. And I was just like, just you fucking wait, motherfuckers. Yeah, we are. I, I'm working on that script today. So, you know, and, and that's, that's the only thing I can do is pick the biggest fight I can and go to the wall for it and try to win. And that's how I sleep at night doing what I do, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely very admirable considering I think a lot of people in that position would feel very uncomfortable um, exploring that. So, you know, most people wouldn't even try. Yeah. You know, they, they would just say, oh, hey, what's the oh, I love Obama. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you want. You know, well, how can I make you happy? And to me, it was my process was more like, how do I piss him off? <laughs> you know, Because if I'm not if we're not doing that, then we're not doing it right. You know, and, that's yeah, and, the same. and th it would it would give people, I think, an, an excuse to write off a lot of the, the very important points you're making on the show. Yeah. If they felt like you were involved in some kind of a. Yeah, it's a whitewashing of that kind of policy, and it gives a credibility. And then if people were able to kind of write it off that way, they wouldn't be able to take away any of the other lessons that you're trying to impart on yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's like, look, if if uh, if Netflix had come to me and said, hey, you want to make this show without Barack Obama, it would have been a little bit simpler, you know, but that was the position I was in. I had the opportunity to tell people these stories and do it with Barack Obama's name on it. And I was like, all right, that's a different project. It's going to be more challenging, but here's how we do it in a way that, you know, still works and still has integrity. And and it was my job to make that happen, you know. And you end on an uplifting note. You talk about the importance of getting involved at the local level. And, you know, sure, the show is about how the federal government works, but you talk, you make an impassioned case to the viewers that they need to get involved at the local level because there's a ton of things that affect you and change your day-to-day -day life that mm -hmm. people don't, e don't even want to pay attention to. And, you know, local newsrooms are dying. They're really struggling to keep up. If they even have them anymore, they're being bought out by major uh, companies and just gutted. And there's so few people to even track local governments and like city halls and county uh, administrators and all these different types of things that really have a big impact on your day-to-day -day life and can change for the better or for worse just by participating in local elections. Yeah. And I, I think that was a perfect example to, to bring up uh, because also now in Los Angeles, I know you're, you're, you're super involved at the local level in Los Angeles and we're on the heels of some big progressive wins in LA, which is just awesome. So could you talk about uh, the case you make in the show and 
also why we should be celebrating the the uh, elections in California and Los Angeles right now. Yeah, so where I end up in the show in the final episode is uh, it, it kind of mirrored my own personal crisis because I spent, you know, I've been making Adam Ruins Everything since 2015. And, you know, when I started my career, my goal was to just raise awareness of issues, right? I was like, oh, if I can just talk about this shit on TV, that's going to make a difference, you know, stuff that people don't normally talk about. And then, you know, as we were making this show, I, I was like, hold on a second. I've been talking about some of these issues for years. So has everybody. And we haven't seen change on them. You know, we wrote the, we wrote this season in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the, um, you know, the, the protests around the country about criminal justice. And I was sitting in LA going like, I'm watching, you know, the cops tear gas people. Um, and it's been what, 30 years since Rodney King. You know, like this is the same shit that we've been people have been demanding for years and years. People have been saying the LAPD is hurting and killing us for years and years, and they still are. And we haven't seen that change. Mass incarceration. I've been you know, I, I did it. I covered it on Adam Ruins Everything two or three times in like 2016. And where's the change? You know, and so what? So I started to really get upset and say, well, I, I can't just talk about this shit anymore. I want to figure out like what the hell we do about it when the government is so big and we are so small. And the answer that we found when we set our research team on it is that so many of these problems are actually local problems on the local level. So criminal justice, for instance, is fundamentally not a national issue. The federal prison population is not that large. The federal law enforcement um, is you know, not what's causing our racist mass incarceration system. It's part of it, but it's the minority of it. The you know it's state and local jails and prisons that our people are locked up in, and the number one official who's making the difference uh, in those is your county district attorney or your city district attorney or your state attorney, um, and those are much smaller races, and nobody is voting in those in those races. Most district attorneys are elected unopposed. And uh, their turnout for those races is incredibly low. I mean, the turnout for mayor's races is low. Um, imagine how low you know races are for for district attorney. Um, but you know, the literally, if you look at what you know is, drives mass incarceration, it's these tough on crime district attorneys who do things like you know they set policies that say, okay, we're going to try fifteen year olds as though they're adults. We're going to pursue maximum sentences for everyone who has an eighth of weed in their pocket. We're going to you know do gang enhancements so that anybody who's in a gang database, which is basically every black person in most cities, um, is you know going to get uh, extra years just because they are listed in some database as being in some gang. You know after they're picked up for a traffic stop or whatever the fuck. Um, you know this is this is the policy of district attorneys. And um, uh, and that means that on some level, we, the voters, have been voting for these policies. Um, and that I don't just mean white voters. That's true of like all voters. There's uh, uh, an incredible uh, professor named James Foreman Jr., Pulitzer winner. He wrote a book called Locking Up Our Own about um, – I've interviewed him on my podcast factually – about how you know even in uh, black communities, communities of color, you know these sort of prosecutors were very popular for a very long time because it was just sort of the American consensus that this is the way that we should handle crime. Um, but we're starting to realize that, you know, that had disastrous results, you know, as much as people want to blame, uh, let me just say, you know, Biden's crime bill, right from the nineties, it's a bad bill and it had disastrous results, but it was a wave that was also affecting every single jurisdiction locally as well. We were all voting for this shit back then. Um, and, uh, 
but what all of this means is that if we want to change mass incarceration, we can do it locally. We can do it locally just by voting differently in local elections. And by more importantly, this is not a go vote argument. It's a it's a it's an argument for organizing on a local level, building movements on a local level that can actually flip these seats. And so we go profile, for instance, Reclaim Philadelphia, which is a group that uh, in Philly came out of the Bernie Sanders campaign there after the um, uh, 2016 election. All those organizers sort of looked around and said, OK, how do we build a movement in our own uh, community? And they built the movement that got Larry Krasner elected in Philadelphia, who is the um, reformist DA, formerly a public defender. And he is transforming criminal justice in that city. He is refusing to try minors as adults. He's refusing to throw people in prison for life for, for you know drug convictions stuff like that um, and he's coming under incredible attack from right wingers from reactionaries from you know affluent white folks but they have built such a durable movement there that they got him reelected and they are frankly taking over the politics of their city and transforming it um, and uh, there there can be a, they can be a model for the entire country and uh, so bringing me to LA you know part of Part of the reason we did that story is over the last couple of years, I've gotten more and more involved in, in local politics here in Los Angeles for the same reason that I've realized, oh, my God, I can make a huge difference in my community just by working locally. And, you know, my experience with that came from uh, being involved in Nithya Raman's campaign for CD4, um, the, the district I live in here in Los Angeles. Um, she was running as a true progressive, as someone who wanted to reimagine policing, who wanted to take a compassionate, evidence-based approach towards homelessness um, and all sorts of other things. And she was trying to boot out, you know, an entrenched establishment, do nothing, you know, corporate Democrat who took realtor money and corporate money and, you know, was part of this whole culture of corruption and, you know, placating affluent white homeowners that existed on the L.A. City Council, you know, just just. The LA City Council has just been full of the stupidest, most corrupt, most do-nothing politicians you've ever heard of, right? Just just people who have basically run on the public not knowing who they are. That's been their entire MO, is to just fly under the radar, get rich people to back them, and get reelected and make a lot of money. Um, like, in the last five years, like, two or three city council people have been indicted uh, for, like, just massive corruption by the FBI and shit. Um, really bad stuff. So... She ran like a, you know, a, a, a people powered organizing based campaign against him, knocking on doors, uh, you know, getting the vote out and specifically just educating the public as to, hey, guess what? There's a person called a city council person and here's what they do. Here's how much power they have in your community. City council people have a lot of power in L.A. because of the structure of city government. Um, and they're basically like tiny mayors. Uh, and, you know, here's what they do and here's the amount of change that we can make. And I put a lot of time in 2020 into her campaign instead of, you know, worrying about national politics. I worried about local politics instead. I made phone calls for her. I knocked on doors. I did fundraisers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I got involved in different, you know, community affinity groups. Uh, and we got her elected. She won. It was incredibly <laughs> empowering to see her do that. And then things started to get better in our district. Like I work with a with a homelessness uh, group in my area, a neighborhood homelessness coalition. We go around on weekends and hand out bottled water and food and try to connect people with services. We're just volunteers, right? Just on the ground folks going out trying to like make sure people aren't dying on the street. And I saw literally in the district that I'm doing my route on, 
I saw encampments start to disappear, not because she was shifting them from one area to another with the cops, like all the other city council people are doing, but because they were sending like teams of five city workers, you know, five people from her office to those encampments together to ask people, hey, what do you need? What kind of housing are you looking for? And using the power of the city council person's office to get them placed in permanent housing. And so they were able to clear entire encampments and get people housed, whereas the in the other district, literally across the street, because I live on the border between the two, the encampments were still there because the you know the 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 idiot in the other district was just you know sending the cops to rough people up like they always had, and nothing was changing. So that was the background. What um, we have seen in the years since was, first of all, uh, since 2020, a big backlash, a big reactionary right wing backlash of wealthy white homeowners saying, we don't like this progressive. We're going to try to get her recalled. They, they launched a recall campaign against her. They launched a recall campaign against George Gascon, who is our progressive prosecutor here in Los Angeles, our Larry Krasner, this guy, George Gascon, who's doing much the same thing here as he as Larry Krasner was doing. Those recalls have failed, though. And what's turned out to happen is that this election cycle in 2022, we've had a brand new crop of progressives run based on what Nithya did. We've, uh, there's a fellow named Hugo Soto Martinez in CD13, who is a labor organizer. He's formerly with Unite Here, the incredible hospitality union that um, you know is incredibly well organized and does incredible things for their members. Um, he's running. We had a woman named Eunices Hernandez running in CD1, um, who has been the power behind some recent local ballot measures that redirected money from um, the sheriff's department into, uh, you know, actual services. Um, she ran. Uh, there's a fellow named Aaron Darling who's running in CD11, which is Venice, um, and uh, a couple of other races as well. Oh, and a, a, a man named Kenneth Mejia, who is running for city controller. Um, and what's ended up happening is we just had the primary election and it's taken a while to count the votes because we've gone to all mail-in ballots here in L.A. But every single time more, more votes are counted, we have more and more wins in the progressive column. And all of those candidates are winning their primaries. Most of them are going to runoffs. But one of them, Eunices Hernandez, is not going to a runoff because there are only two people running in the race. And she has actually built beat Gil Cedillo, who's the previous uh, establishment candidate who, you know, very much sucked, but, you know, is very entrenched in the community. Um, she has just today declared victory over him. And let us let me just be clear how big a deal this is, because first of all, Nithya and these other candidates, they needed, um, you know, the primary and the general to win. They came in, you know, Nithya, her year, came in a strong second in the primary and then pulled ahead in the general. Aeonesis just won on the primary, like on the first ballot. And second of all, uh, she is running openly as an abolitionist. She is a police abolitionist. Um, she says that on her website. She says it verbally when she's campaigning. But she explains what that means to people. She says that means investing in services that you know will stop crime before it starts, um, and you know correcting the social ills that like lead to you know problems such as crime and homelessness. And she fucking won on that. Um, and. It's like an incredible come from behind underdog victory, but it also shows that like here in LA, like we have had wins lead to more wins and lead to like a real progressive starting to look like a wave in the city. Uh, and I mean, all of us who are working as part of this movement are just like fucking thrilled about it. <laughs> it's incredible. So I've talked for a while. What can I, what, you guys, one of you guys asked me something. 
Kenneth Mejia's campaign, I thought, really yeah. was was great on public education of, of mm-hmm. his role and what the controller does. Yeah. Um, just straight up billboard showing where all the money goes. Because yeah. it's one thing to say, oh, we want to defund the police. And it's one thing we want to say, oh, we want to cut back on excess spending and this this and that. Those are abstract terms to like 99% of people. So he would just put bar, bar graphs on a billboard. And it's like, this is what they're spending on you. And this is what they're spending on X, Y, and Z. I think this should change, like just straightforward, and it worked. Like I, I w- like, and people were sharing them all the time because it was like different. Um, but when you when you show people just how disproportionate the amounts are for things that go into you know the police versus social services or investing in the community, any reasonable person is going to be upset by that. So I thought he yeah. did a really really good job. That was that was spectacular. I'm really excited. Yeah. Like he and all of these other progressives won. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And and part of what works so well about his campaign is that, look, the truth about the city controller's office, it doesn't have a lot of power in the city of Los Angeles. Now, that doesn't mean he can't turn it into a position that has more power because that's part of like the soul of politics is taking a position that people think is powerless and turning it into something. But the city controller's office is really, you know, it, it issues reports. Uh, but the thing that he did as a candidate was he started issuing reports. He started looking into public data, filing, you know, the city equivalent of FOIA requests, getting data and publicizing it. He put together like maps, you know, that you can see data on. He did like billboards with the data on it, like you said. Um, and as a result, he started like educating the public as to where the money goes to such an extent that like the LA times when they endorsed him, and by the way, they endorsed him over a three time city council person who like this dude, Paul Koretz, thought he was going to win in a walk, right? Because he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a fucking former city council person. Why wouldn't I win? You know, I'm just going to move from one job to another. Um, but, you know, Mejia not only beat him in the primary, but was endorsed by the LA Times over Koretz. And the LA Times' endorsement was like, yeah, Kenneth Mejia is the best person for the job because he's already doing it. Like he's already chewing up the data and putting it on billboards and publicizing it to people. And that's what you want a city controller to do. So it seems like he'd be a pretty good one. Uh, and that Kenneth, to be real clear, before this, he was not in politics at all. You know, he was a Green Party activist and a couple of things like that. You know, he was like involved sort of as an advocate. But he was not a, you know, part of the, you know, city's political scene until he ran this incredibly innovative campaign uh, that really mobilized people and got them excited about the position. Um, and it was fun. It made it fun to be a part of politics. He has so much energy behind him. It's, it's incredible. And that's just one race among many. And by the way, uh, another one is um, uh, Karen Bass, who's running against Rick Caruso. That, that has gotten a lot of headlines recently. Yeah, yep. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I was one of the many people who felt that Rick Caruso seemed likely to win because Rick Caruso is blanketing the county in ads and the ads are like pure Ronald Reagan. You know, he's smiling. He's in a sweater. He's, you know, he's all tanned and he's like, I want to clean up L.A. and we're going to do it together. And it like, you know, if you don't know anything about the mayor's race, sounds pretty good. People are like, yeah, it seems kind of dirty. Let's let's he'll he'll make the people I don't like go away and he'll do it with a smile on his face, you know, and that seemed like that would be an appealing <laughs> message to people. And Karen Bass, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, she has not run as a progressive. Um, she's she's run as a semi-progressive, but she's, you know, sort of uh, not really, in my mind, given uh, as strong as she could have a vision of, 
you know, here how here is how progressive policies could actually make Los Angeles a better place to live. However, she is certainly the more progressive of the two of them. And every time more votes are counted, more and more votes going to go into her column. And so despite the fact that she was outspent like 10 to 1, um, you know, she is still handily beating Caruso in the primary. They're going to go to a runoff. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it really is starting to feel like we have built like a movement here in L.A. that is based around educating the public as to what their local government does and telling them, you know, patiently and compassionately and entertainingly why these policies will work and why they matter. And the public is responding like it's starting to really look like a movement. Now, maybe you talk to me a year from now, I might be like, the sky is falling. The reactionaries are undoing everything, you know, <laughs> could be. That's how I felt a year ago after Nithya's victory. I was really worried. But, you know, um, uh, I, I, I what I've seen has given me a lot of faith in our ability to create a movement that makes local change. What did you make of the recall of um Chesa Boudin in in San Francisco. Not to now that you've had this positive spin, I didn't take things back to the depressing, uh, pessimistic yeah. side. But that's an example. You, you mentioned Krasner and the kind of reactionary forces that are they're trying to undermine what they're doing, and yeah. that you saw that kind of be successful in San Francisco, and in the idea of even um, trying to uh, tackle these criminal justice issues in a, in a slightly more humane way. And you saw a coalition of reactionary forces and the media yep. and powerful business interests and political leaders come together to ensure that wasn't going to be possible. What, what was your takeaway from that? Yeah. I mean, I was really down about it for a bit. I mean, to me it was, you know, that we had good news here in LA on election night and um, you know, I, but I was the guy at the election night party telling people, Oh, Chase Bedin got, got recalled. And people were like, stop harshing our vibe, man. You know, like we're, we're happy tonight. And the news has only gotten better since. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of progressives don't yet realize that when it comes to criminal justice reform, like, look, defunding or, you know, redirecting funding from the uh, from from the police departments to services is important, but it's not going to happen in an instant. Right. And and one thing we need to do, actually, James Foreman Jr. told me this on, on my podcast. Um, he put this really well. You know, we need to build those systems that we're talking about. We need to start building programs that will actually, you know, uh, cure social ills, stop crime before it starts, et cetera, if we want to make the case that we should spend less money on police, right? Um, so that's like a really long-term goal. But for right now, if you want to fight mass incarceration, you want to fight the negative effects on criminal justice in communities now, the real game is the prosecutor's office. That is like it. That, that's, that's, you know, the alpha and the omega of criminal justice reform in many ways because of how powerful these positions are. And you know, one thing that's disappointing to me is I've I have not yet you know seen progressives actually understand that to the degree I think they need to, and that's part of why we made this episode. Um, uh, you know, which was uh, episode six of the G Word is like almost entirely about how important the prosecutor's office is to anything that you care about in criminal justice reform. Uh, so it was really disheartening to see Boudin booted that way, um, and you know, it's also been disheartening to see. Uh, a, a lot of rhetoric on criminal justice reform rollback. You know, I'm really struck by how, uh, you know, at, at Joe Biden's first State of the Union, or maybe it's not technically a State of the Union, it's like first joint address to Congress. He said, um, you know, we, something along the lines of, we need to, you know, make sure that, you know, our black Americans are not, you know, the victims of violence at the hands of police, right? 
Um, he said that in early 2021. And by the following year, he was saying, we will not defund the police. We will refund the police, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm like, God, <laughs> that's you, the sir. fastest 180 I've ever seen. Right. Uh, and look, we can, we don't need to get into some argument about the, you know, the wisdom of the phrase defund the police. We can just point out that like a year prior, this was one of the biggest issues in democratic politics. And then he didn't mention it uh, a year later. Right. And, you know, we've seen a media fervor, a reactionary fervor around, you know, rising crime rates. Now, half of the media fervor is is made up about, you know, like flash mobs that are stealing Rolexes and shit like that. Um, or, you know, these freight train robberies that were actually due to those freight trains cutting their security services. And a lot of it has also been not crime, but people being upset about poverty being visible on the streets. Homeless encampments and things like that are constantly conflated with crime. There has been an increase in crime on a lot of the statistics, but all those forces together have like really seen like they've eroded, you know, the prospect of criminal justice reform. And that's really upset me. And, I've, and you know, I've been really down about it. But in the uh, culminating the recall of Putin, right? But in the in the weeks since, you know, I've come to appreciate that actually, if you look around uh, the country, if you look around the rest of California, there are progressive prosecutors winning races all over California, just in less famous counties, you know, just in counties that don't make the New York Times. Um, uh, you know, George Gascon, they've been trying to recall him ever since he was elected two years ago. So far, they haven't been able to co collect the signatures like, you know, maybe we should start worrying once they're able to. Now, I am worried about his reelection in two years. I think we need to like sort of build, you know, build an awareness in the public of like how important this role is and start telling the stories of what the reforms are doing. Um, but you know, uh, maybe the situation isn't that dire. Larry Krasner, they tried the playbook on him. He was reelected in a rout. He was reelected like 65% or something like that. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that what we're dealing with is there's an inbuilt media narrative that it's the weirdest thing you'll ever see because you will open a newspaper and you'll see an editorial that says mass incarceration is a stain on our society. We need to do everything we can to end mass incarceration. And you'll see it right next to an article about angry voters are yelling at the local district attorney for being too lenient, you know? And it's like, okay, what, yeah. what the fuck is going on here? What's going on is that there, as much as we need this change, there is a deep, deep strain deep built-in narrative in our media, in our in our own psyches uh, that demands a tough-on-crime attitude and that, you know, has an immediate reaction whenever we have less than that. Um, but I think the media narrative might be a bit overblown. I think that, you know, the, the public, when they're presented with the ideas, I, I think they actually maybe are still going for criminal justice reform. Certainly um, the election, the primary election in L.A. has given me a lot more faith on that should we end it on a positive note, Rob, for once? <laughs> it's, a, it's worth a shot. It's, we might as well do something different every now and then, you know? Uh, yeah, we're can usually I, can I on say, a really down note. Can I say one last thing? Yeah, of course, Please. of course. The, this is something I'm trying to spread, um, is that, uh, uh, you know, and it's something I sort of wish I, wish I had said directly in the show, so I'm sort of trying to say it in my interviews, um, which is that, like, a lot of people are, are mistaking my message for a go-vote-local message, Right. That like, hey, you should just show up and vote differently in local elections. And we do say that because that's the entry point of activism for most people is voting. But the thing that is really transformative, in my view, is getting involved in organizations in your area. You know, it's joining your union and showing up to if you're in a union, showing up to, you know, the the that 
you know, committees and being a part of its political action. Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's the local chapter of the DSA. Maybe you and some friends take over your local Democratic Party office, right? Um, maybe it's, you know, there's all kinds of, maybe it's your local sunrise movement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, that, to me, is what's really transformative because it's really easy to be, de- uh, you know, depressed and pessimistic when you're sitting around on Twitter all day. But when you are actually showing up to meetings on a weekly or even monthly basis, you're meeting other people who care about the same issues you do um, and you're talking with them and then they say, oh, hold on a second, Jordan, you show up to this a lot. Do you want to help us uh, plan this event we're doing next week? And you say, yes, you will be too busy to be depressed because you'll have too much shit to do. Um, And uh, that's what I really try to encourage people to do. I think that is how we really make change. And the reason is that's how the right wing has done it. That's how they've rolled back abortion rights. That's how they're doing. That's how we know. That's how they kill gun control is by joining those groups and showing up and yelling at people every single day. And we can do the same thing. And I would also just I would also just say that another thing people can do is. Subscribe to this podcast as well as me and Jordan's <laughs> Twitch streams. That is also doing politics, and it's going to make uh, you feel better about praxis. the way that the direction that America the and the rest of the world is going. Yes. If you want to reach a new level of leftism, you have yeah. to watch the G Word on Netflix. That's, just, I think, that's in. That's in capital. I'm just telling you. Yeah. I mean, I love that you guys are even making that joke because the number of people who think leftism means like arguing about Jimmy Dore on a Twitch chat. You know oh, what I mean? I or like talking even. about. Like the Young Turks and Sam Cedar and like Steven Crowder and like this weird like micro universe of like non-political celebrities who are just like microcasting is like this is not activism. This is not politics. You know, um, it's fun. You can have some fun doing it. But like well, get opinion. the fuck outdoors, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I am so – I am so tired of that whole world. Uh, and But here's the thing. Hate to rain on your parade, Adam. They, you say it's not politics, oh, but it's going to be politics. You must not soon. have heard. Yeah. yeah, you have. <laughs> you must not have heard the news because no. there is a draft Jimmy Dore for president <laughs> campaign brewing. <laughs> <laughs> wow, for president. Yeah, out of the yeah. people. Incredible. Party incredible yep. look i have to share a bill with that guy sometimes at flappers and listen to him to do 15 minutes of anti-vax stand-up comedy so oh. you know i think he's i think he's good the vaccine uh, uh, they don't tell you it makes it kills you um it's like 15 minutes of that in front of oh. a bunch of you know right. uh very very nice drunk comedy fans in burbank um i think he'll do great on a convention stage is what i'm saying <laughs> 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 All right. Well, uh, you know, everyone who listens to this show, you're obligated to put in at least five hours knocking on doors for Jimmy. Uh, Adam will be out there kind of doing the, the canvassing launch. So we appreciate you for that, Adam. And we appreciate your time joining us today. Where can people outside of the G word find you and your work? Well, you can listen to my podcast factually wherever you get your podcasts. It's uh, interview a different expert from around the world of human knowledge or activism or journalism or science um, every single week. Um, and you could find me at Adam Conover, you know, anywhere that has hat symbols. Nice. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, thanks for Adam. having me, guys. I had a blast. 
Hey everyone, thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>